So as we jump into our sermon time tonight, I want you guys to imagine this for a moment, okay? It's mid-December, 1941. Now, before you boo me off the stage for making you imagine that it's mid-December, we know the cold's coming, we know the snow is coming, you also get to imagine that instead of living in the snow-capped hills of Wausau, you get to live in the land of never-ending beaches in Los Angeles, okay? Where the average temperature for the month of December is a perfect 70 degrees. There you go. You're welcome, right? Why did I ever move here from Los... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So as we're imagining that we're in Los Angeles in the year 1941, now imagine also that you are a high school student in your senior year getting ready to graduate and get your high school diploma. And after you graduate in the spring, you get to fulfill your dream of being the first person in your family to ever go to college. Life is good. You live in a great city. You go to a great school. You have a great family. Your dreams are coming true. Everything's going well for you. Now, the next day, you're at school, and you hear your name called out over the intercom system with a variety of other students' names, and you're told to report to the principal's office immediately. As you go to the principal's office and you walk into the office, there's a lot of people cramming into this small office. And as you wait longer and longer, fear and kind of this sense of anticipation starts building within the room. Before long, a slender, kind of stern-faced man enters in. It's obvious he's the principal. And uh, uncompassionately, he just looks over and says to you, you will no longer be receiving your diplomas in the spring because yesterday your people bombed Pearl Harbor. You no longer get to graduate. Just like that, everything changes in an instance. And you're having a sense of fear, of anger, of confusion, all of these emotions swirling around at once. And as you leave, you begin to wonder, can anything possibly get worse than this day? But then you realize, yeah, they're about to get a whole lot worse. Because over the coming weeks, as you walk through the city, you realize that everyone is pointing at you. Everyone's jeering at you. When you go to speak to someone, they won't even look at you anymore just because you are a Japanese-American. And you are a Japanese-American because you are a citizen, actually, of the United States. Your parents immigrated a generation ago to this land of freedom to provide a better opportunity for you. And you were born right there in Los Angeles, but now everyone's treating you like an outcast. Before long, there's xenophobic language written all over your house when you get home. Before long, people just want to treat you like you have the plague, and you're beginning to see other Japanese Americans being bussed away to internment camp hundreds of miles away. Finally, it's your time, and the bus pulls up, and you're forced to get in, crammed with other people, and you get bussed to, ironically, Death Valley, and that's where your internment camp is. And your internment camp is your home, for your next four years. Your dignity, your respect, your hopes, your dreams, your community, your family, all of it is taken away from you in an instant. Four years, that becomes your home. You're an American citizen. You did nothing wrong. You committed no crime. You've done nothing wrong. It's all because of things, circumstances outside of your control. And in a moment, everything's been taken away. You are an outcast that nobody wants around. Imagine how devastating that would have been. 
Now, I stitched that narrative together from a few different stories that I've read about internment camps and books and articles over the last few weeks. So all of those facts are true, not of one person, but all of those were pulled from different stories. That's a dark chapter in our nation's history. There's many things I'm proud to be an American, but in these ways, we have also made mistakes in the past. And I can't help but wonder how horrifying it would have been to be that person. How horrifying it would have been to have all of that ripped away. How horrifying it would be to be ripped away from your community, your job, your home, your school. And wondering, will I ever get any of this back? Having no idea what the next day would bring. We can't even imagine what it would be like to be so desperate for deliverance. But as you have that mindset, I want you to hold on to that because that's exactly the mindset that the person we're going to look at tonight was experiencing. She was an outcast. She was desperate for deliverance. And in our text tonight, we're going to learn that she has been enduring the life of an outcast for 12 long years. And she feels totally alone. She's broken. She's desperate for deliverance. But after a decade of searching, she's failed to find a deliverer. That is until she encounters in our text tonight, Jesus. She finds the only person with the power to deliver her from what she's been experiencing. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context to our passage tonight. In the gospel of Mark, particularly in chapters 4 and 5, Mark is trying to illustrate the amazing, incredible power of Jesus. And he's doing it in such a way that he's showing that Jesus has the power to fix a broken and sin-cursed creation. Because ever since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, what happened? Sin entered into creation and God had to curse and punish all of creation. So since that time, Nature no longer behaves like it should. Storms erupt that take the lives of millions. Not only that, we look around and we see the devastating effects of spiritual warfare and demonic activity all around the world. In our own bodies, in our own lives, we feel how our bodies now break down and decay and don't function as they're supposed to. That's why we have to wear glasses. That's why maybe some of you out there tonight are coughing and sneezing. If so, don't shake my hand afterwards. And worst of all, we have to watch on as people that we love die because eventually death claims all of us. Those are the devastating curses of the fall. But in Mark's chapter four and five, he's showing that Jesus alone is the person with the power to reverse the curse. Jesus alone is the person with the power to roll back the devastating effects of sin and to be our savior and our deliverer. So at the end of Mark chapter four, Jesus during the moment of a, of a massive storm where all the apostles are afraid and they think they're about ready to die, what does Jesus do? He stands up, speaks a couple words, be still. And what happens? Immediately the storm goes away. In the beginning of chapter five, they go across to a new area and there's a man who has been, uh, he's been indwelt by demons for years and not just one demon, a legion of demons to where he can break chains and they can't control him. And with just a word, the demons come out of this man and he's healed. Later on in Mark chapter 5, 
Jesus shows that he can even loosen the pangs of death as Jairus' daughter dies and he brings her back to life. And in our passage tonight, we're going to see how Jesus can even rescue a woman who's broken and devastated by sin and not only by sin, but also by an illness that's just plagued her life for over 12 years. We see Jesus in this passage has the power to bring deliverance to a woman's body, but also more importantly to her soul. In this passage, Mark is showing that in a world broken by sin, Jesus alone has the power to save. Jesus alone has the power to deliver us. So that context in mind, let's look at Mark chapter 5. We're going to read verses 24, the second section of it, all the way through 34. So let's uh, start together. It says this, And a great crowd followed him, being Jesus, and they thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she had suffered much under many physicians. And she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather continued to grow worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus. So she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? And his disciples said to, said to Jesus, Seriously? You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you're asking who touched me? But Jesus continued to look around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And she told him the whole truth. And then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed, be permanently healed from your disease. In these verses, we see a pretty incredible interaction, don't we? We see an interaction between Jesus and a woman that I've given the title, the the outcast. With one conversation with Jesus, she finds the deliverance that she had been so desperately longing for for the last 12 years. But interestingly, in this passage, we see that she not only finds the physical deliverance she longed for, she finds a spiritual deliverance she didn't even recognize that she she needed. She encounters the only person with the power to deliver her both physically but also spiritually. And we also see an example of dynamic faith. When I read this account and I see this woman's life, I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. So Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of what we call the the hall of faith. It shows off and showcases some of the most amazing saints in scripture and how their faith urged them on to do incredible things. Verse 6 says this, defining faith. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think she gives such a great demonstration of what that kind of faith is. She exemplifies our big idea of the night. Faith conquers fear. Faith conquers fear. So as we look at this woman's story, we're going to see three movements to her story. The woman's suffering, the woman's seeking, and the woman's salvation. So I just want to give us a little framework. So let's dive into her story by understanding the woman's suffering. Look again at verses 25 and 26. It says that there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she had suffered much under many physicians, but she didn't get any better, but continued to grow worse. 
Immediately, we learn that this woman suffers from a defect in her organs that causes her to have a continual uh, discharge of blood for 12 long years. And nobody had the power to help her or to ease her pain or to fix her problem, even though she tried. She went to the best physicians of the day, but instead of healing her, it says the physicians actually caused her more pain and made things worse which is funny because that's a detail that's omitted in the gospel of Luke. Does anyone know what Luke's occupation was? A physician, yeah? He didn't want to charge his friends of malpractice, so Luke just kind of slipped that one out. But Mark, no. Mark's going to include all the details for us. So he says she suffered under many physicians. And it's not really a surprise when you look at some of the medicinal prescriptions they would have given in this time for a woman with this disorder. So I looked up some of the remedies, kind of the folk remedies they had at this time. For a woman with a continual discharge of blood, uh, you could carry around the, the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer, but then switch it out for the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter. Or you could carry around a barley kernel found in donkey dung, or maybe you would prefer to drink wine that had three pints of Persian onions boiled in it, turning it into a healing tonic. Is it any surprise that none of these cures worked, right? So nothing was helping her. So for 12 years, this woman was suffering in physical agony. And after 12 years, she's constantly weak. She's constantly tired. And at this point, she's probably nearing death at this point if something doesn't change. She suffers horrendous physical pain. But she's not just suffering physically, is she? She's also suffering financially. What does it say? She spent everything that she had to try to get a cure. At one point, this woman was probably a woman of means. She probably had a lot of money. She probably had a nice house, nice clothes, nice things, but all of that's long gone. She mortgaged the house a long time ago. She sold everything, desperate for a cure. But 12 years later, she still is in the same situation that she was. So she suffered financially, she suffered physically, but that's not even worst of all. She suffered also emotionally and psychologically for years. To truly understand what this woman had to suffer, we need to go back to the Levitical law, the Old Testament law, and understand what would have happened to a woman with a disorder like this. So if you go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 15, in verses 19 through 33, it declares in the Old Testament law that whenever a woman had a discharge of blood during a certain time of the month, they would be declared ceremonially unclean. Okay, so they were unclean under the law. But not only that, Anything that they touched became unclean. But not only that, anyone they touched became unclean. So if a woman went to go give her husband a kiss, unclean. If she went to hug her children, unclean. If she went to touch the hand of a friend, unclean. Uncleanliness was passed along. But what does that mean to be ceremonially unclean? What does that actually mean? When the Old Testament, uncleanliness was kind of a, a metaphor of being separated from, from God. So it was kind of the opposite of holiness. There's holiness and then there's uncleanliness. So there's this idea that uh, when you're unclean, uh, as a man or a woman, you weren't allowed to go into the temple to worship, so you couldn't enter into the temple. But not only that, if you persisted in uncleanliness, you couldn't even live in the city anymore. You had to live outside the city gates. So for many of us, when we go through a trial and a difficulty and a challenge in our lives, what gets us through? A lot of the times it's our friends and our family and our community that gives us the strength to continue on. But this woman suffered in isolation. She suffered alone. 
She probably had been living outside of the city for years now with all of the other people who were unclean. And to make matters worse, when anyone would walk by, she probably would have to yell out, unclean, 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 to warn anyone from getting too close. For 12 years, imagine what it would look, feel like to have people look at you with disgust. Imagine what it would be like for 12 years not to have a hug or feel the touch of another person. Shame, humiliation, and and disgust were her constant companions. Imagine what it would feel like to think that everyone around you just wants you to go away. Maybe even you think God feels that way too. This woman is desperate for deliverance. She's desperate for salvation. She's desperate to feel loved and affirmed and valued and welcomed back. She's desperate for those things, but after 12 years, she's probably given up hope. That is until she hears about a man named Jesus. It says here that there were reports going around about what Jesus had done. And that's no surprise. By this point in Mark, we already see that Jesus has healed a paralytic. Jesus has cast demons out of a man that had a legion of demons within him. Jesus had restored the sight of the blind and performed many other miracles. And as she hears these reports, she can have two responses. She can either doubt or she can believe. It'd be easy to doubt and think, I'm not getting my hopes up again. There's no way this so-called Messiah can fix me. I'm done. I'm where I am. I don't need a savior. I've just, I'm consigned to this lot and I'm just going to live with it. But she doesn't. What does she do? She responds with faith. Well, how do we know that she responds with faith to these reports? Because she lives out Hebrews chapter 11. She seeks Jesus out. She draws near and she believes that God rewards those who seek him. She seeks a savior. That's the second movement of our story. The woman's seeking. Look at what happens in verse 27. Look at what happens in verse 27. It says that when she heard the reports about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, thinking that if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So notice that it's kind of, Mark's kind of moving through this narrative pretty quickly. So she hears about the reports and Jesus is moving through the city and she knows here's her chance, but what's the problem? Verse 24 tells us the problem. There was a crowd thronged around Jesus, right? So when you hear that idea, Jesus is a celebrity at this point. He's kind of like the rock star that you see surrounded by swarming fans that just want to touch him and be near him. So there's this massive crowd around Jesus so much that he can't even move forward. And guess where she's at? at the very outskirts of the town. To get to Jesus, what does she have to do? She has to face her biggest fears. She has to go into the crowd and potentially face humiliation. Because what happens when the crowd sees her and they realize that she's pushing and touching her way through? They're going to be livid. She has no idea what people are going to do when they re- if they recognize her and realize that she's the unclean woman passing along her uncleanliness to everyone else. But faith had to conquer fear. She didn't care. She had a hunger, a righteous desperation to be near Jesus. She knew that Jesus had what she needed. She was bold and tenacious. And her faith was just so strong that she believed that she just touched the tassels of the end of Jesus' garments, she believed she'd be made well. That's some pretty incredible faith. I mean, she believed so strongly that all she had to do was just brush up against Jesus and she could be healed. She understood what it looked like to live out Hebrews eleven six. So what does she do? She decides she's going to get 
near Jesus no matter what. She probably put on a disguise so people wouldn't recognize her. She goes into the city. She starts pushing her way through the crowds. Then she comes into the inner circle and the apostles are kind of his bouncers standing around. We know they're mean bouncers. They kicked kids away from Jesus whenever they tried to get close. So they're like, no one's getting near Jesus at this point. So she has to slip her way through. And then what does she do? She finally reaches out and touches Jesus. She gets a hold of him. And what happens? In an instant, she's healed and she knows it. A miracle is performed. She can feel it in her body. She's been healed. Tissue has been regenerated. Sickness has been dispelled. Her weakness has been replaced with strength. Her tears of sorrow are replaced with tears of joy. She's so joyful because she knows that she's been healed. But what happens next? With lightning-like reflexes, Jesus swings around and says, who touched me? Who did it? And the disciples are looking at Jesus like, okay, I know it's like two in the afternoon. Are you having a heat stroke out in the sun? Like there's people thronged about you, Jesus. You've been touched a million times today. What are you talking about? But Jesus kind of shoves them aside. He says, no, 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 no. Someone has touched me. Jesus could discern the bump of the crowd from the touch of faith. And he starts seeking her out. She had tried to kind of do the dine and dash, right? She got what she wanted and she's trying to run away. She thought, yes, no one noticed it. She's taken off. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Show yourself. Where are you? I, I want you to reveal yourself. But he wasn't doing that to be punitive. Jesus was doing that to be redemptive because there was something in her life that still needed to change. So she was caught and she had to come forward and confess. It reminded me of a moment when I was a freshman at Cedarville, you had these cards that you had to use to scan in to get into your dorms in a bunch of different buildings. And uh, you're supposed to take it out and touch it to the scanner, but sometimes I just like whack my side on it because uh, I was lazy and I'd open it up. Well, one day I did that, I broke the scanner off, right? So I broke the scanner off, it's dangling by its cords. I was so nervous, I put it on real quick, but I put it on upside down. <laughs> I did have the heart to confess because I was a freshman and just a recent Christian and I was little in my sanctification at the time. So I didn't own up to it. Well, the next year we were talking and we, I was meeting with like my RD and there were some other RAs and he was talking, he's like, no one ever came forward and someone broke the scanner last year. At this point, like, I just felt the conviction, right? I'm like, I don't want to confess. I don't want to confess. He's like, who did this? I was like, it was me. You know, the woman that says here, she came forward and told him everything. That was me. I was like, it was me. I put it up backwards. I'm so sorry. But, but my RD was very gracious and he responded with, with grace. So I didn't, I didn't get in trouble. But that is kind of what we see in this passage too. She, Jesus says, who touched me? And at this point, the woman realizes she's not getting away. Jesus wasn't just asking. He was kind of combing through the crowd looking for her. And she realizes there's no hiding. So she starts to come forward and say, it was me. Now in that moment, I'm guessing you could have heard a pin drop within the crowd because everyone realizes it's her. She touched me. Let her have it, Jesus. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, rebuke her, because it was a taboo for someone that was unclean to touch, to touch a rabbi. So they're all expecting Jesus to bring the, the hammer. They're expecting Jesus to be angry and chastise her and really let her have it. But Jesus didn't respond that way at all. Jesus didn't respond that way at all. When everyone else in the world saw someone to be avoided at all costs, Jesus saw someone that was worthy of love and compassion. So Jesus brings her forward, and as she testifies and has to face her biggest fear, she talks about her uncleanliness and her shame and her desperation and her hopelessness. But also she gets to share a testimony right before everyone and say, 
But everything changed when I touched the Savior. So we go from the woman seeking to the woman's salvation. The woman's salvation. As the woman finishes speaking, I'm sure that all eyes turn to Jesus and they're just ready for his response. They're thinking what in the world that he's going to do. They're ready for the words of retribution to come. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When the world felt disgust, Jesus Jesus felt compassion. When the world saw an outcast, Jesus saw a daughter. When the world saw uncleanliness, Jesus saw someone worth cleansing. Don't miss how powerful this verse is. In this verse, we really understand why Jesus just couldn't let her slip away into the crowd. This woman came to Jesus wanting a miracle, wanting a something. Jesus wanted to have a relationship with a someone. The miracle was just a context for meeting. And Jesus recognizes at this point, she might be healed physically and that's great, but he wants her to know that she can also be healed spiritually and cleansed from her sin and her unrighteousness. Jesus cared far more about cleansing her soul and giving her spiritual peace than just fixing her body that would one day break down and decay anyway. Notice what Jesus actually says in this passage. The first thing he says to her is what? Daughter. He calls her daughter. This is a really interesting thing because this is the only time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus calls someone daughter. It's the only time. It's the only time you'll see that happen. And by calling her daughter, what's Jesus doing? He's giving her a new identity. You've been outcast for so long, but you're no longer outcast. Now you're a daughter of the king. He took away her shame and gave her dignity. He took away her isolation and gave her a family. He said, you are now a daughter of the king. You have a right relationship with God because of your faith. You are my daughter. But notice the second thing that he says to her. He says, daughter, and he says, go in peace. Go in peace. Now, when we think of peace, we hear that word tossed around a lot, and it doesn't always mean what it would have meant to uh, an Old Testament Jewish audience at this moment. When they hear the word peace, it's filled with salvific meaning. The idea of peace is having everything in your life as it should be, having restoration, having salvation, having deliverance. There's no idea of having peace in your life if you don't first have peace with God. So by Jesus saying, go in peace, he says, you've been healed, and he's showing a difference there. He says, you've been healed, but you also have peace now. He says, where you had brokenness, where you had sin, where you had unrighteousness, you are now at peace with God through your faith. Go in peace. But then thirdly, we see why all this was possible. He said, your faith has made you well. Or I like to translate that, your faith has saved you. It's the same word, made you well, saved. So it's the same word there. Your faith has saved you. Jesus looks there and he says, all of this is healed. You were right with God. You've, all of this is possible because you had faith. You believed, you sought, and you trusted that God rewards those who seek him out in faith. She needed saved from her physical problem, but she needed saved even more so from her spiritual problem. She needed saved from her sin. So in Jesus, she found a deliverer, but a deliverer for even more than she ever really imagined. So that's our, that's our passage tonight. That's our account. But as we kind of close out this teaching time, I, I want to apply that to our lives now. What are some ways that we can think through this for right now in our context? The first thing I want us to think about is this. And this one's really, really incredible. 
realize that Jesus is the only person in the universe who could deliver this woman from her uncleanliness rather than be infected by this woman's uncleanliness. Think about when this woman had touched people, what did she always do? She passed along her uncleanliness and they were powerless to stop it. And uncleanliness in scripture, according to a passage in Isaiah, it's really a metaphor in a lot of ways of sin. And that's the sin problem we all have. We all have a sin problem. We're all unclean spiritually before God. And we just pass that sin along to other people because no one has the power to take our sin away. No matter what righteous works we do, no matter what physicians we go after, no matter what good works we try to atone with, we can't get rid of our uncleanliness and no one else can take it away. Our parents being Christians can't take away our uncleanliness. A pastor baptizing us can't take away our uncleanliness. No one else has the power to take away our uncleanliness other than Jesus. She touches Jesus and rather than passing along her uncleanliness, her uncleanliness is taken away. She's healed from it. Why is that? Well, that's because we know that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the perfect substitutionary lamb. He was the atoning sacrifice that could cleanse away our sin. And that's exactly what happens here. I love the passage in Isaiah 53, 5 that says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus can take the suffering because he suffered in our place. All you have to do to experience the cleansing power of Christ is to seek him with faith. Your faith has saved you. So if you haven't done that tonight, please recognize there's a savior who can take away your sin, who can take away your shame, who can take away your brokenness. All you have to do is seek him in faith. A second word of application though I want us to all see the compassion that Jesus had for a woman who was in such suffering. This woman suffered horrendously for 12 years. It says in this passage that she, um, that she endured just terrible, terrible things. It calls it an affliction. That's the same Greek word that talks about a scourging that you receive with a whip from a Roman centurion. That, that's, what it, that's the same word. That's what it was like to suffer for her. She suffered so terribly. And yet Jesus looks on her with love, compassion, and a tender heart. Even though the world have rejected her and said, just deal with your own problems. We don't care about you. You're an outcast. Get away. The world rejected her and she felt alone. She felt like no one cared. She felt like no one wanted to reach out or could make a difference. But Jesus had compassion on her. And I just want us to realize that tonight because maybe there's some people out there tonight that are feeling a lot like the woman in our story. Maybe you're out there and you're going through a difficult time and you're suffering. Or maybe you feel like the outcast and you have for your entire life and you're asking the same questions. Does anybody care? Is there anybody that cares about me or wants to help me? And maybe you think God doesn't care. But God certainly does care. God loves the outcasts. God is moved with compassion for the suffering. God wants to come in and provide salvation and deliverance and peace. He offers that for those who seek him. When I was reading this passage today and thinking through this message, I couldn't help but think of a young man I met over in, over in Budapest. When I was over there a couple months ago, he was in high school and as he was sharing his testimony with me, he said he was at a place where he really just wanted to commit suicide because he felt like no one cared and there was no hope in his life. And he had never heard of Jesus. 
But it was at that moment, someone came and shared the message of Jesus with him for the first time. And he wound up being a Christian. He's the only Christian in his family, but he wound up being a Christian. And with joy in his heart, he shared how Jesus completely turned his life around. And now he's trying to use his testimony to tell other people about the peace that you can find in Jesus. That peace can be found in nowhere else. That peace that we all long for can be found in nowhere else, no one else. So I don't know what you're going through tonight. A trial, a tribulation, something hard. I don't know what we're all suffering with. And God doesn't always promise to work a miracle to deliver us from our circumstances. He did in this passage, and God does sometimes, but that's not what he promises. But what God promises is that he will give us a peace that surpasses understanding, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and that we never have to be afraid because nothing can separate us from his love. Find your peace in Christ because nothing else will satisfy. But lastly, we're reminded in this passage that there's a big difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. I think of this passage and I visualize Jesus being surrounded by a crowd that's pressing in and just wanting to get close to Jesus. They're all touching him, but once the woman touches him, Jesus knows something different has happened because it's not the bump of the, uh, the crowd. It's the touch of faith. And he's felt that this woman had that faith and wanted to be near to him. There's a difference between being part of the crowd that wants to be near Jesus and being the individual who wants to have a relationship with Jesus and pursue that faith on your own. Jesus can distinguish the difference every time. And the reason I bring that up, I think there's a lot of people who are comfortably, comfortable being fans with Jesus, but not always followers of Jesus. We think about in the Gospels, the followers of Jesus, or the fans of Jesus, they just went with Jesus because they wanted something out of them. What did they want? They wanted food. They wanted healings. They wanted something kind of dynamic happening. They want Jesus to flip tables again or something, right? They're like, they're just waiting to see what Jesus is going to do next. But when push came to shove, what happened to all of the fans? The crowd left. The crowd disseminated. The crowd didn't care until where there was just a few faithful followers left. But this woman, she didn't want to be part of the crowd. She pushed through the crowd to lay hold of Jesus herself. There's a difference between being a fan and a follower. In our culture, there's fans as well. Sure, you might come to church every once in a while. You might put a little WWJD on the back of your license plate. You might, you know, you have the, a cross necklace. It's easy to say, yeah, yeah, I'm part of the Jesus crowd, right? But there's a big difference between saying Jesus is someone I just enjoy being around sometimes and Jesus is my King and Lord. This woman understand that faith conquers fear and faith draws close to Christ. Remember the words of Hebrews 11, chapter 6, and we'll close with that tonight. It says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith conquers fear. Seek him out and he will never leave you or forsake you. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, this is a, just a really moving text. I'm so grateful that you have love and compassion because we live in a world that's devoid of both so oftentimes. This woman was an outcast who had been suffering so, for so many years on her own and she didn't have any hope because nothing in this world could fix her problems and nothing in this world could satisfy her longing for you. That satisfaction, that hope could only be found in Christ. So Father, help us not to be like the people that are searching for meaning and satisfaction in the empty wells of this world, 
but help us to drink fully from the fountain of life. Father, help us to love you, help us to seek you, and help us to have that faith that conquers fear. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.